0: He was 39 years old. The doctor's visit was anything but an ordinary checkup. For in this doctor's visit, this seminary professor, this father of an adopted three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son, heard the words, Cancer. But it wasn't any cancer. It was terminal cancer. There is no survival rate. It's always fatal. Though it may land in remission for a time, though the treatment of it is extensive, elaborate, elaborate, exhausting, it'll always come back. All of a sudden, at his doctor's appointment, what was thought to be just the beginning of his life, after all, he was on a research sabbatical at the time, having finished his PhD and finished his first round of teaching at Western Theological Seminary, Todd Billings' Grappled with his new reality that he is now a man with a clock. When he began his first day of chemo, his wife Rachel smiled and handed him a card. This card was colored with bright crayons and was made by a sweet 15-year-old girl in their congregation there in Michigan who had Down syndrome. And as is often the case, kids with Downs just see the world and get the world in its beautiful simplicity. And she said to him in his card, God is bigger than cancer. She didn't know enough to try and wade into all of the things that Christians sometimes do to make each other feel better. She didn't try and quote Bible verses or talk about the statistics of survival. She just said, with childlike faith, God is bigger than cancer. Todd wrote this on a blog as he was reflecting on some of this. It's still very much a part of his story. He knows that decades have been chopped off of his life. He's now in remission, but knows that it will come back. He knows that his time is borrowed and that every day is precious. He writes this, He says that the center of God's revelation is not a secret about how to live a lengthy, self-sufficient, and secure life. We've been united to Christ by the Spirit to follow the way of the crucified Lord. On this path, we do not seek out suffering for its own sake, but we do expect for the God of Jesus Christ to be active in the most unlikely places on the path of suffering, on a path hidden from the light of worldly glory. We are a people who take up our crosses and follow Jesus. And this is not a joyless path. Instead, when we follow the path of prayer with the psalmist's, We shed tears of joy and celebration as well as tears of lament. Lamenting and hoping in God with the psalmist is a practice that runs counter to our consumer culture. Rather than soaking in self-satisfaction or in self-pity... In these seasons of sorrow, we find our affections reshaped by God. We delight in what delights God. We grieve over what grieves him. It is a joy that is bigger than cancer. He found in this newfound season of his life, deep and real Theological questions that he didn't have any longer to wait on seeking out their resolution in his own heart. He would later pen these words that lament is joy in a minor key. Lament is joy in a minor key. The Apostle Paul invites us to consider words, and you know these words. You've seen them on mugs and t-shirts and bumper stickers and screensavers. You've heard them tossed about as glad and happy words, and that they are. But Paul invites us today to consider the peace of Christ and what that means. And how you do that without being glib, but being full of faith, because God's bigger. Philippians 4 4 through 9. Would you stand as we read God's word? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray, Jesus. You didn't give these words as if you were blind or glib or dismissive of our world. Nor did you give these words as an anesthetic to numb us and take us out of the world. Instead, you've given us these words to call us to be more fully present in the world as we love you And long for you and lament over what sin has done in this place that you have given us. So Father, today would we see Jesus, would we fall more in love with him? Would we see his gospel as more beautiful and more believable than we did when we first walked in the room? For our desire, our longing, is to do what Paul commands, to rejoice. So by your Spirit, show us our hearts. Show us the things that we hold on to and the things that keep us awake at night. The things that only we know but aren't hidden from you. Show us these things, not to shame us, but to change us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to do three things. I want to define peace. I want to talk about some of the disciplines that come with peace, and I want to talk about the depths of peace. First, how would we define it? Well, you've heard me talk about this before, in the Bible, peace is a rich and varied Old Testament concept. It comes from the idea of shalom. And it's not just a cessation of violence. It's not just an absence of things, but it's a fullness. It's a, it's a presence of God. It is, a, it is a rich and overflowing abundance of himself. Peace doesn't just mean that things are calm. Peace means that things are full. When Paul commands in verse 6 to not be anxious for anything, let's be clear about what we are and are not talking about. What we're not talking about is the ordinary care and concern that comes from a people that love people and are genuinely and rightly concerned for them. What Paul's talking about here is a much different idea. What Paul is referring to here is the debilitating angst that comes from the threat of losing something that we have built our identity around. In this case, anxiety is an indication of misplaced trust. Now. Many of you who know me and, and know that I've been fairly transparent with my, own, um, with my own story, even from this pulpit, know that I am someone that, uh, that suffers from a fair amount of anxiety, but thankfully it's only really bad on days that end and why. You will also know that I have sought out uh, medical help to find a regimen of medicines that helps to knock down a little bit of the subconscious fight-or-flight mechanism that my body seemed to want to always be in, okay? Just because uh, traffic's bad, it doesn't mean the same thing as Chicken Little and the Sky is falling, right? My adrenals didn't know that. Now, Now that I've done the hard work of getting some biology out of the way, it doesn't mean that I'm off the hook from dealing with why my response that causes anxiety still seems disproportionate. Ah, because the thoughts are still there, even if the adrenals aren't firing. The thoughts are still there, even though the night terrors aren't there anymore. The thoughts are still there, even though I'm actually able to sleep fairly well at night now, thank God. Ah, but you see, where is it that I have wrapped my identity? Where is it that I ultimately feel if I lose this, I lose my very self? See, meds only get me part of the way. There's still a heart that I have to contend with. There's still a heart that I have to get to the bottom of. There's still places where I love things more than Jesus. And now that I can breathe deeply and keep a level pulse, now it's time to deal with those things. Because if you deal with anxiety like I do, There's no shame. You haven't failed as a Christian. Jesus isn't looking at you and going, why aren't you just slapping this memory verse on your dashboard and running along and having yourself a great day? It's okay. But just because you and I haven't failed as Christians doesn't mean we're yet to the finish line of being Christians either. And that's where this text invites us to dance with Jesus. Not to be shamed and not to be crushed and not to be uh, made less, but to be made more, to be made much of because Jesus doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants to make us more like himself. And he doesn't do that because he's mad at you or he's disappointed with you or because you've somehow made a mistake. He does that because he loves you and he gave himself for you. Because in the cases of anxiety, deep and debilitating anxiety, the body learns certain responses. It learns how to panic when there's nothing to panic about. It learns how to not sleep when there ought to be rest. It learns how to have nightmares when there ought to have sweet dreams. Because the heart wants what it wants. But if God is bigger than cancer, God's bigger than your heart and bigger than your head and bigger than your wounds and bigger than your anxieties. The something that we can't bear to lose is our heart's foundation. It's the the thing that we've internalized. It may be even so far down deep in there that you can't even put words around it. You don't know what that thing is. You don't know what what that deep down foundation is. That may be where you need a friend or a pastor or a Stephen minister to talk to and figure out what exactly is it that causes me such distress? What is it that keeps me up? so much during the night. It may be good things. It may be appropriate things. The problem is these things in this world are all finite and transient, and they can't sustain the hopes of our hearts. They just weren't built for that, and neither were we. In his book Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this. He says, Anything that becomes more important and non negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. In this paradigm, we can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. What makes us uncontrollably angry? What makes us uncontrollably anxious? What makes us uncontrollably despondent? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. I'll give you an example. When I was in grad school, I got this brilliant idea that as a full-time seminary student and part-time church musician that I should uh, put a volunteer choir for my church together that's never had a volunteer choir before, and then solicit other seminarians to be a part of the volunteer choir with me, and then go out and fundraise to get a chamber orchestra hired, and then convince the choir that we should all wear tuxedos and black gowns and do a big gala event for the seminary around Christmas time. Because this seemed like a good idea. And they were like, great. Here's the money. We'll put it on the calendar. We'll even invite some of the members of the board of trustees. Now, how many of these have I done in my life? No time like the present. I can say with relative certainty, I didn't sleep more than two or three hours a night. From about Labor Day, because church musicians start thinking about Christmas in July, it's a thing. From about Labor Day until the concert was done. Several times I began looking at escape strategies like extradition to Cuba or driving for UPS, or maybe selling off an appendage because I would have to pay the seminary back for the colossal mistake that they had made in investing in such a foolhardy idea. Why was I so anxious? Because my identity was wrapped up in my approval. And it was about whether or not I could be successful. And until the night came when Jesus showed up and did what only he could do, I was driving blind. I'd like to tell you that at the conclusion of that story, I learned my lesson. more stories like that, but we don't have time. Paul says, as Philippians being the book of joy, that peace and joy are deeply interwoven. But peace and joy, as we have mentioned often, need not be confused with tranquility and happiness. You see, one of the dominant schools of thought in the day of Paul was stoicism. Right? You've heard about being slightly stoic. Stoicism was a philosophy that embraced the virtue of lack of feeling. Such aloofness insulates people from the wide range of emotions, from pleasure, to pain. You're just flat. So is that what Paul's advocating here? Just stuff your emotions way deep down and never feel. Just rejoice. Hasn't this verse been shoved in your face before as a way of shaming you for feeling anything other than complete tranquility and peace with Jesus? Or maybe it wasn't a well-meaning Christian that shoved it in your face. Maybe it was just you. Maybe you read it and you felt the pangs of helplessness and guilt. And instead of running to Jesus, you felt like God was just ticked off at you. Because it's one more thing you couldn't get right. Listen again what Tim Keller says. He says, rejoicing, this word rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. Paul directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians 4.4, 4. but this cannot mean always feel happy since no one command can command someone to always have a particular emotion. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. Well, that's different than a praise chorus, isn't it? That's different than a praise chorus. In another particularly difficult time in my life, I had to contend with what it means to treasure God above all things, including the circumstances that I could see and the unknowns that I feared. I was a minister at this point, my goodness. I should have all the answers and be able to pray all the eloquent prayers, and yet all the words I could find the energy to muster were from Psalm 119, verse 68. Oh God, you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes as the next wave of doubt came crashing over me, as the next wave of fear came crashing over me, me, this minister who've had hands laid upon him to, to step into this holy office, me, this one who's supposed to stand in front of God's people and declare with, with absolute confidence the glory, the goodness, and the grandeur of the gospel in Jesus Christ, the only prayer that I could get out of my mouth was, oh, God, you are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. And occasionally, my life verse from Mark 9. See, some people have great life verses in minds. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That one doesn't monogram as well. a little awkward for that to be on the preacher's car. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. These prayers were neither pie in the sky happiness nor a refusal to feel They were a resolute determination to focus and meditate on what I knew to be true of God over and over and over again because I needed something that was true to drown out all the things that weren't. Now this leads me to my second point, which are some of the disciplines of peace. The first discipline that I want to commend to you is a discipline of thankfulness. A discipline of thankfulness. Paul says in Philippians 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, we are a people that understand that we are to be a prayerful people. We are to go to God and commune with him and bring our deepest thoughts and desires to him. How many of you uh, have at some point or another in your life um, fallen into the habit of your prayer life being kind of like an organ recital? You're thinking about Bach. I'm thinking about Aunt Susie's hip and I'm thinking about Uncle Bob's knee and I'm thinking about my left foot, right? We, we end up simply going and praying for all the ailments of the world. But what Paul's suggesting here is that an antidote to our anxiety, an antidote to feeling anxious, the thing that would ground us deeply in the gospel, the thing that would ground us deeply in the peace of God and in rejoicing would be a thankfulness in prayer. The one who is at peace is the one who lives day by day, moment by moment, knowing fully that God has satisfied our deepest need. Our most pressing problem is that we were alienated from God. Our joy, our delight comes in the fact that in the midst of all this, God saw us and saved us and rescued us from wrath and condemnation that we rightly deserved. And that he has bought us with the price of his own son and a Adopted us into his family. And so if you are in Jesus, that is true for you. So prayer we get and petition we get, but what about thankfulness? Thanksgiving, this idea of Eucharista, this, uh, by the way, uh, Eucharist, which is another word for the Lord's Supper, is really a, uh, a Greek word that means Thanksgiving. The Eucharist is a meal of Thanksgiving, which is why you've noticed that when I Uh, invite us to partake together of the Lord's feast, which we should do that more often, by the way. That's a different sermon. When we come together and feast together as the Lord's people, I say, hey, don't be weird about this. Like, you don't have to put your head down and be really solemn. Like, we just did a prayer of confession earlier in the service. We heard the absolution of our guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, when it comes time now to meet with Jesus, you don't come wondering if you're a part of the family. You come rejoicing that because by his grace, you are a part of the family. It's a meal of thanksgiving, don't you see? So thanksgiving is an important accompaniment of true prayer. Uh, The recalling of God's goodness and mercy will save us from the huge pitfalls which await the ungrateful soul when we see that God has never once broken his promises and are reminded that he shows up always just in the right time, even when the diagnosis for a 39-year-old is cancer. The antidote to anxiety and worry is in part to be speaking to God all of the ways that he has shown us his kindness and grace and that it was all undeserved. Robert Murray McShane, one of the great uh, Puritan writers, um, had this to say, for every one look at yourself, take ten at Christ. Now I'm a, I'm a card carrying navel gazer. Part of that's because I have an Audi and it's weird. You didn't need to know that. That was probably more than. We can edit that out, it'll be fine. Part of it's just because I can get stuck looking at myself way too much. How many of you fall into the habit of taking one look at Christ and 10 back at yourself? It's not going to help you. Look on your Savior. Rejoice and give thanks. For the price has been paid. The ransom has been satisfied. The justice of God, the the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus. Jesus. Second thing that Paul calls us to is to think in, in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What does Paul mean when he says, think about these things that are true and honorable and just? It's, it's Pauline shorthand for doctrine. It's Pauline shorthand for what's absolutely bedrock. And true. It's the truth of God, it's his character, his attributes, his revelation. One should dwell on these things, but let's let's talk about thinking for just a moment because some of us get into the habit that we we don't need to think much about the deep things of God. That's what we pay professionals to do. Some of you have heard me joke that, you know, some say that ministers only work one day a week. And we know better. David works two days a week because he thinks about the really deep stuff. If you ask Jen later, does David really only work two days a week? Take three steps backward quickly. She is short in stature and mighty in spirit. (laughs) (laughs) And if you think I'm joking, I quote that great sage of our age, Mr. T. I pity the fool. We're going to have a lot to edit out, aren't we, in the sermon audio? Okay. Um, Some of us think that it's dangerous to think about deep things. That's a problem. We are to do it. It's, it's not just the professional Christians or the nerdy Christians or the super smart Christians. All of us, all of us are called to think about um, things and dwell on them and talk to God about them and comfort our hearts with them and gaze upon Jesus with them. But that's just one aspect that we have to avoid is not thinking. The other aspect is that thought is fodder for fighting, That the deep things are just there to give us ammunition to go slaying all of the liberals and all of the neocons and all of the Armenians and all of the holy rollers and everybody else. That's not helpful either. The thinking that Paul commends here is not a thinking so that you can be pugnacious or worse. The thinking here is what Paul commends so that you can be a grateful and thankful and delighted people. God's truth is not a set of propositions to be traded in, but a pattern of living that changes and shapes us. That's well and good, right? But what is it? How do we get to the depths? Well, before I talk about that, I was doing a little bit of reading because um, icebergs have always fascinated me. And back in... um, Back in 2017, a portion broke off from Antarctica's Larsen C. ice shelf. Now, what is the size of the portion of this thing that broke off from Antarctica? It is about 2,200 square miles in area. To put that in perspective, it's equal to the state of Delaware. Now, how far below the waterline? does this particular bit of the glacier go? Well, thankfully, it's only a few feet under the water, six or seven hundred few feet under the water to be exact. How does something like that stay afloat in the water? Part of it is the salinity of the ocean. The salt water keeps it buoyant. To go back to what I said at the beginning, the ocean's bigger than the iceberg. Can you imagine what would happen if a ship ran into an iceberg the size of Delaware with a foundation beneath it going six or seven hundred feet? So how does that iceberg stay afloat? The ocean's bigger than the iceberg. So how do you and I stay afloat? It's not just a thankful heart. It's not just a thinking heart. Those are essential, but guess what? Those don't sustain you because it's not up to you to be sustained. You need to be sustained by something that's bigger than you. Here's third idea, depths of peace. Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You've been with me in this series long enough to know what you've seen and heard and experienced in Paul up until this point. Paul has been laboring for his church to see that, so that they could see his heart has been captured by a gospel, by a love that's way bigger than him. He said, whether I live or whether I die, it doesn't matter because for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So whether I'm able to go back and see you or whether God takes me home now, it is okay because I am satisfied in the love and the riches that I have in Jesus. The practice of, the, of these things is in part, um, in some, in total, being supported and carried and buoyed by the love of God. Now, where do we see that? Listen to what Isaiah chapter 57 says. Isaiah 57 verses 14 through 21 says this. And it shall be said, the prophet writes, build up, build up, Prepare the way, remove of every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Listen to verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Now, if we were to just stop there, I bet many of you would be like, yep, that's how I feel. I'm backslidden, whatever that means. Probably it's bad. Backwards is bad. And God feels like he's hiding his face from me. He's mad at me and he hits me because all these things in my life he keeps taking away from me. But But it doesn't stop there. Verse 18, God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. And his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. If you want to know why the Bible makes such a big deal about the people of God having peace, It's largely because when there is no peace, it's a people who don't know God. But what do you do? How do you find yourself secure in the storm? I used to watch the show Deadliest Catch. I haven't been able to recently um, because uh, I'm squeamish. And the Bering Sea, if you've ever watched the show, is a pretty relentless and unforgiving sea. And if a big storm is coming, they try and get to safe harbor, but sometimes they can't. So what do they have to do? They have to drop an anchor and ride out the storm. See, what's really going on for us is whatever is... Uh, whatever is the deepest love of our hearts is going to be the anchor for your soul. You can have a religious veneer and still get tossed by every wave that comes. You can be thankful when you're told to be thankful, mindful when you're told to be mindful, but when your greatest love is threatened, you're still thrown around like a rag doll on the seas. When your life is outside of God, outside of the center of his love, you're restless and you're anxious and you're without peace. But what hope do we have? Again, it's that verse in verse eighteen of Isaiah fifty-seven. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the, of the lips, peace, peace to the far, into the near. How do we know that God will do this? Because what we see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God has punished Jesus. God has poured out his wrath on Jesus. God has tossed Jesus into the unrelenting depths and into the waves and into the sea so that you and I would have an anchor for our souls because Jesus did not stay tossed in the sea. He rose from the grave. Jesus came out of the grave and said, you and I belong to him and not one of his sheep will he ever lose. What that means is when Christ is the anchor to your soul, though everything else in the world may seem to come and wreak nothing but havoc, Jesus is the anchor that will never let you go. Some of you know the hymn song of Horatio Spofford, which we're going to sing in just a moment. And some of you know the story, but others others of you don't, or maybe you haven't heard it all it's the tale. Horatio Spofford lost everything in the Chicago fire of 1871. And so he sent his wife, Anna, and his four daughters to England two years later, and On their journey to England, the ship sank. The girls were um, put onto a lifeboat, but they were later scattered and lost. A rescue ship later found Anna unconscious in the ocean and rescued her. When she got to England, she sent a cable, a telegraph, back to Horatio. It simply said, saved alone. When Spofford got on another ship to go to England to bring his wife home, he would sum to him it as well. Now, why would someone dealing with grief and dealing with anger and dealing with sadness and dealing with all of the things that would accompany losing everything? that would bring you happiness, that would bring you delight, that would bring you significance, why would he spend all of his ink thinking about Jesus? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What does the cross have to do with the loss of your family? What does the cross have to do with your cancer diagnosis? What happens when the cross is there, but the tragedy has still come, when the wave still comes over the bow, when it looks like everything around you is threatened? What does the cross have to do with it? The cross has everything to do with it. When you feel like life has come unhinged and all of your peace is gone, when it seems utterly chaotic and disheveled, you see the cross and you see Jesus and you see how much God cares for you you see all of the tragedies coming before you that you say, I don't understand. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And God says, I didn't do anything to deserve this either, but I gave my son willingly for you. Spafford, who lost all reasons for peace, thanked God for Christ, thought about Christ, and loved Christ because of how much he had been loved. It didn't mean it made the grief magically disappear. It simply meant that to put these things into practice, it isn't about what we say or do. It's about how much we've been loved. And by dwelling deeply and richly in that love, that, that life in whatever waves or sorrows may come, tragedy can be overcome because when we see the man upon the tree and the empty tomb where that man should have been and the scars upon his hands and his feet, we know that this is what love is. This is how peace comes. The punishment of God on God has been the thing that has brought us peace. So what do you do about that? What do you do about the debilitating sadness that comes? Dear friends, Paul said, forgetting what is behind and striving towards what lies ahead, I press on to the goal that is mine in Christ Jesus. If the spirit of Christ dwells within you, he is not done with you. If sadness and idolatry, misdirected loves and misplaced priorities are the story of your life today. I have good news. God is not done with you. He who began a good work in you, Paul said in Philippians 1, is faithful and will complete it. That mean there's not going to be hard work. The hard work of my story is just the beginning. Unwrapping my heart from all the things that I think I love more than Jesus is just beginning. I still have good days. I still have terrible days. Some of those terrible days are even on Sundays, and I have to still show up in a pulpit and preach. Woo! Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The only reason that I can pray that prayer because I know that God doesn't reject me because I struggle with unbelief and I know he's the only one that I can go to help to believe.